0: My family originally came out here via covered wagon wow. and landed in California in 1850. Okay. So it's kind of funny. Significant year. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and obviously they came out for the gold rush.
1: That was Jim Murphy, a retired creative director, born and raised in San Francisco. I'm Jeff. And this is Storied San Francisco. This is part two of Jim's two-part podcast. If you haven't listened to part one yet, it's available in all the usual places. For this episode, Jim will talk about some of the overlaps he had with the late 1960s San Francisco music scene, his time in the Navy, and what life was like in the Bay Area coming back from the Vietnam War. Just a quick note, the recording I got on this episode is kind of low, so you might want to turn up your speakers just a little bit. Here's Jim.
0: opportunity I had an art teacher that was always looking out for us and he came up to me this one day and he said hey uh, you want a job and I said you got a job I thought I was gonna he wanted to give me a job that he was gonna have me do he said no I had somebody call the school they're looking for somebody who can do lettering he's looking for somebody and he's calling a local high school he's a business here in the neighborhood so he said to me you know Jim you're you're pretty good letterer he says uh you know, why don't you go check this guy out and, and see if uh, what he needs? And he says, you know, he's willing to pay you for your services. So you, you know, to, it's an opportunity to make a little money. So I, I got the guy and I called him up. His name I can still remember. His name was Roger Taskins. and he had a little music shop up at the end of Market Street in the Castro. Yeah. And the Castro in those days was still a blue-collar working class. Irish. Uh, mainly Irish, mainly Irish. Irish up mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it was mainly Irish uh, up in that area, and um, there's some Italian, but mainly mm-hmm. Irish Italian. But mm-hmm. and, you know, all the bars were owned by Irish, and all that. Up there, right. um, but I went up there and I and I talked to him, and as it turns out, he he went ahead and uh, sold amplifiers and speakers, like Tuck and Roll, you know, mm-hmm where they had this fancy tuck-and-roll up that they used to put in the upholstery of hot rods. Right. So that that's what his thing was. And uh, his hook was, he was really into the music scene. The, the, the current music scene at that time in the 1960s, 67. Uh, so he was really keyed into bands that were playing at the uh, Fillmore Auditorium. Sure. And bands that were playing at the... Uh, at the Avalon Ballroom, Oh wow, Winterland, yeah. And what he would do is he would loan equipment to these bands with the idea that they would be able to uh, use his equipment. And what he wanted on the equipment was a little sign that said, uh, "You know, amplifier or speaker, compliments of Caskins <laughs> Music Company, with his address," because he knew there were a lot of a lot of people attending those things that had bands. A lot stuff. of musicians so were was, starting up, yeah. He looking at it okay. as a promotional vehicle for him. I'm, I'm sure it worked. Well, al- oh, it did work, but in order to get the bands to use the equipment, he would invite the bands to come over to his little music shop hmm. and test out the equipment. Wow. So the, the key for me, it was a great exposure for me, and at this time... These people were only known within San Francisco. We're going to
1: get to some names yeah, here in a we minute. Are. yeah. <laughs>
0: so, you know, we, we'd get the Grateful Dead in there. You'd get uh, nice. uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. you get a lot of different musical venues mm-hmm. that would come in and test the equipment out. Oh,
1: people from the venues would come, Yeah, and not then, just And band.
0: then they'd say, Hey, yeah, great, we love the equipment. And he'd say, great, I'll have it moved over to the film or auditorium or they were playing. With the name but on it. With the name on the Very speaker. important, That's yeah. That's all he cared about. Yeah. So it, it was great. So every day I would go in there, I'd make these signs and he always wanted the signs to be very unique and kind of fit the psychedelic nature of design at that time. Yeah. So we kind of emulate on that.
1: And I, I should point out, done by hand. All done
0: by hand. All done by hand. All done by hand. Which I appreciate. So, so, they, uh, so it was fun for me because as a... As a high school kid, I was a senior in high school at mm-hmm. the time, uh, feeling very creative. I thought, this guy, anything I did, he loved. Yeah, he thought it was great stuff, you know? And uh, so I did that. And But again, these people were all very accessible. Mm-hmm. Not like it is in today's music world. Right. They were all very, very accessible. Mm-hmm. And again, most of these musicians and stuff, a lot of them lived right
1: there in the neighborhood. In the Castro, Castro Noe Valley? Of, uh, yeah. Mission Joplin, for instance lived the in hate.
0: I mean, oh okay she was right there you know, Wow and, uh, when I when I was in high school uh, I went to mission high school and one of my classmates was Carlos Santana. Sure. and so and, he, and he's been very good about giving back to the high school I know nice. uh, in terms of because he's been quite successful mm-hmm. but uh, yeah a lot of this in fact when Carlos went to mission he uh, he was a backup band. Bill Graham kind of took a liking to him and his band. They had a real different sound, but basically he was the backup guys. They weren't headliners. Right. They did the backup stuff, but he still had this great opportunity. And Mm -hmm. his big breakthrough came uh, with his uh, his you know knowing Bill Graham. Right. That that really helped propel his career. But they have a great sound. I mean they sure made their mark in the music world. Yes. Yeah. So it was it was a great experience for me. After getting out of high school i kind of continued to do art school for a while and then uh lost my deferment because i quit Um, you
1: quit school i
0: quit i quit school and the reason i quit was because uh when i was a senior in high school just before graduation uh, i was i walked across church street and believe it or not i got hit by a streetcar oh goodness and it put me in the hospital for two weeks. yikes and i remember the doctor said to me that Gee, you know, I got good news and bad news. And I said, Well, what's the good uh, what's the bad news? And he said, bad news is we're gonna have to operate on your leg because you've crushed the muscles in your leg. That's when a streetcar hit me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was thankful to be alive. Yeah. And then he sh- I said, Well, what's the good news? He goes, with an injury like this, you'll never be accepted in the draft. <laughs> so he gave me a letter. So as far as I was concerned, that letter was as good as gold. Right. When I got my first draft notice, I went over to Oakland. And oddly enough, that's the first time I've ever been in Oakland. I was born and raised in San Francisco. At age
1: 19? Nine, 19, 19, wow. never been to Oakland. Okay.
0: Never crossed the Bay Bridge. Right. Uh, I, Your I, family
1: had one car.
0: Yeah, and we lived. We never went anywhere. And even. there was no Bart. And so we, we basically did wow. everything in San Francisco. Yeah.
1: So uh, I had some were you cur- were you curious growing up?
0: I could see it. Yeah, I was. We had an uncle who was kind of estranged to the family, and I know he lived in Oakland. Mm. But anytime I saw him, he always said, "Come to our house. Sure. He had never gone over to his. Right. Family.
1: Anyway, yeah. so you took your doctor's note over to to the draft. To the draft. Took
0: my first draft office. physical. Took the whole physical. I wasn't really too concerned because I had this letter. Uh, they had different stations that you would go through you know, for your eyes check and to listen to your heart and all. those doctors about each station. And I remember the last station was Station 11, and that's if you had any documentation that you felt would keep you from serving as a member of the armed forces. Right. So I had my letter, so I went over there. I figured this is a slam dunk. I just give it to him. He looked at the letter. I remember, he looked at the letter and then he put the letter down, he broke out a stamp, and he stamped my form, and it said, uh, acceptable for military service. And I said, uh, but the letter. And yeah. I he said, I can read. This isn't going to keep you out of the service. So then it was sort of like a scramble. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, it was like, I got a t- deadline I got to meet, and uh, which was one of the reasons I ended up joining the Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my whole goal was that if I got to go in the service... Uh, my first goal was I need to take advantage of the GI Bill. Right. My family was not in a position to help get me through college. Right. So I needed to find my own means to be able to financially meet the needs of college. Absolutely. And uh, my second goal was if I got to go in the service, I got I to get into a branch that's not going to put me in harm's Right. Way. <laughs> yeah. Try not uh, to die. Try not to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, At the time, I looked at the lesser of two evils Mm -hmm. and um, ended up joining the Navy. The the drawback with that is if you got drafted, you were committed for two years. Mm. If you joined the Navy, you were committed for four years. Mm. So I decided to bite the bullet and do the four years and knowing I was going to get the GI Bill. And in my mind, I said, I'll never have to go to Vietnam. And as it turns out, I uh, I did get the GI Bill, so I was correct on that. I was very incorrect on, on the second notion that but I was going never to Vietnam. To go to Vietnam. So okay, I, I did end up going to Vietnam, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, you know, thank God I came home and I was fine. But but uh, you know, those those years were very different because w- what also happened in those years is uh, there was there was resentment on both sides amongst the people in the neighborhood and the people that I uh, I had known because some of them had to go in the service, mm-hmm. some of them didn't. So there was a certain amount of, you know, uh, where they didn't They didn't particularly, they, they blamed each other. In mm. other words, the guys that went in, oh, it's good you went in, but you weren't given any kudos for going in to the service. Right. But the guys that went in kind of felt a little resentment for the guys who didn't have to go in. Hmm, so sure. created some divisions within hmm. those friendships and stuff.
1: Was there yet a sense of sort of pro-war, anti-war? Oh yeah, or was I that see. not until you came back?
0: No, I saw that more when I came back. I mean, I'll tell you an interesting story when I was in... Um, you can
1: have some wine also. Okay. Please feel free. i need, need that for <laughs> yes. the next story. For the li- literally a war story.
0: It was very different because now all of a sudden the culture I left four years before um, was a little more conservative. Mm-hmm. It was still loose because my last year of high school was a summer of love. Okay. So I, I 67. Re- yeah, I remember that. It was, it was great. And, and I can talk a little about that because I got some great memories and stories I'm sure. about that. But uh, yeah, the culture had changed and it became, became more um, liberal and more, uh, more driven by by protest and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. For example, at the art school, uh, on more than one occasion, the Black Panthers came in to talk mm-hmm. to the student body. So we, we had a lot of uh, people that were shaking society up or making statements activism. about activism, mm-hmm. everything that, that, that occurred there. Yeah, so when, I, when I, I was in the service and when I got out of the service, separated out of the service, uh, I went into, uh, I attended art school. Okay. So I attended, the school at the time it was called the California College of Arts and Crafts. Crafts. And uh, CCAC, I attended art school.
1: which it still was when I moved here. CAC, yeah. And
0: then I can't remember what around, maybe 2002 or three yeah, is when they took changed, the, yeah, they, they dropped it. the crafts. They dropped the crafts, yeah. It wasn't, I guess it wasn't the thing they wanted to, because people kind of interpreted crafts differently, yes. I think, you know. And they wanted, they wanted to be taken a little more seriously, I think, yeah. But it, it's an old institution. It's been around since the 1880s, so. When I went to college and I came back, uh, I had some interesting things happen to me in college. One in particular where uh, I was in a class. Uh, first of all, let me back up a little. In college, sure. you got the GI Bill, but your checks... Were we were always sent to the veterans office on campus. Okay. They had a small office where hmm. they had somebody that was identified to interact with the veterans. Mm-hmm. So, what you would do is a private college. So, you would go over to the veterans office the first of every month. They had your check. You would sign the check over to the school, and they would apply that towards your tuition. You okay. Know, uh, And this is at
1: California College of the Arts and Crafts. And
0: again, the college at that point was very, very liberal. Mm -hmm. And and the anti-war movement was in full effect effect in the Bay Area. Mm
1: -hmm. uh, Around what what year are we talking? 68, uh, uh, 9? I
0: started school in 1972. Oh, 72. So by this time, the war had worn on everybody. Mm To the point where nobody wanted it was a it was a bad scene. Right. It was especially bad if you were a veteran. Mm-hmm. So veterans didn't like to bring that kind of uh, attention to themselves. Sure. And me included. So when I went to school at California College of Arts and Crafts, nobody knew I was a veteran. Hmm. The, the people who knew I was a veteran were the guys I happened to see going to the same desk as me, the GI but to we get never the check. Right. We we just sort of acknowledged that we were veterans, mm-hmm. but we never told anybody else. In fact, uh, for many years, the only people who knew I was a veteran was my family and very, very close friends. Wow. I never shared that with anybody. It took me a long time to share that because of the anti war sentiment that was sure.
1: happening. Sure. Sure.
0: But on this particular time, thank you very much. on this particular day, uh, the instructor for the sociology class I was in uh, decided he was going to have an open discussion about the war. Oh, wow. And in those days in colleges, they don't do this now because smoking is very anti. But those <laughs> sure. days, uh, there wasn't any, you know, people would just pull their desk up wherever they wanted to sit in the classroom. Right. You could smoke. Mm. I mean, Everybody's smoking in the class. Everybody's getting this relaxed. Open discussion mm-hmm. the Vietnam War, which really kind of turned very, uh, very anti anti Vietnam, and to the point where it eventually I knew what it was leading to. It was going to lead to the military and the veterans, and you know I heard all the innuendos about baby killers and things like. Sure. It, it was a very, for me as a veteran, it was a very terrifying experience. Mm-hmm. How did you Out, they the don't veteran. identify you, right? I don't want, because the instructor was whipping the class into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. He, he was very anti, anti the war, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. uh, class ended, but there were two other veterans in the class. At the time.
1: That you knew of, or everyone? Knew everyone knew, everyone I mean, knew, or
0: no? I only knew them because the line. I had seen these guys over at the veterans' office. Right. I knew they were veterans. They also knew I was veterans. We all had the same impression. That's the weird thing. We we immediately had this impression like we were going to be in harm's way. Right. And I remember after the class, um, the two guys were talking and I walked up to him. And one of the guys looked at me and said, what the hell just happened? I remember him telling me. Wow. And we kind of looked like we don't know because this thing just kind of took off like a rocket. Right. The three of us decided to have coffee, together. Okay. and just kind of talk over what had happened. And oddly enough, that was a very special moment because I never talked to those guys ever again. <laughs> the thing is, we, we needed to get it off. The sure, we needed to kind of regress a little and kind of kind of commiserate. Ourselves. Maybe well, you know, commiserate isn't the right it word, word, but you know, we were, it was a, just it was, relate. Yeah, on on. the thing that was weird about. Mixed emotions at that point in our lives, you know, because uh, my take from the war is before I went in, uh, going into the draft center, I had people handing me leaflets and things like that. I want to know part of this. I mean, I thought, Mm -hmm. gosh, if I don't don't go through with this, I'm going to be an embarrassment to my family. Mm -hmm. You know, I would never embarrass my family. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, it was my duty to be the chosen one the way, you know, my father had been the chosen one in his family. The guy who's going to have to go off and fight this war, right? And so my whole demeanor was, was a little more conservative, right? Although I, I wouldn't say I was a hardcore right-wing person. When I came back from the war, my whole demeanor was just the opposite. Yeah. So in my mind, I was as liberal as the as those kids in that class. The one difference is. They didn't go to
1: the And they didn't, and right? I did. And they didn't know and you. And I went.
0: thought, I have a better take on what's really going on over You've there. actually seen so it up did close. It my take equated to the people I, I served. Right. So I almost felt like when I came back, when people would badger me, I felt it was my duty to say something on a positive note out mm-hmm. of respect for the guys that I knew. I was over there with that had flies. Right. And so, yeah, it was a very turbulent time in the, in the area. Yeah. And it still wears on me today as terms
1: as uh, those years. Yeah. That's it for part two. Please follow Storied SF on Twitter and Instagram at Storied SF. Facebook is Storied San Francisco. On the website, I've got some photos of Jim Murphy in the Navy, as well as when he graduated from CCAC. The web address is storiedsf.com. If you'd like to drop us an email, it's storiedsf at gmail.com. Jim is a member of the Chance to Excel Foundation, a nonprofit that supports kids with learning differences in the arts and sports. Joe Begale did the music for the podcast. Don't forget to go see Michelle Kilfeather's photo show at Emperor Norton's Boozland in the Tenderloin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for some stories about doing street art in San Francisco.